listening to Resurrection Life with Pastor Nathan Trice. Greetings, brothers and sisters in Christ. He is risen. Let's conclude our study of the subject of heaven by exploring today the biblical expression, new heavens and new earth. And let's get a few Christian misconceptions about the future of our cosmos out of the way in order to do so. Uh, Many Christians view the future of planet earth uh, in terms of that expression, sometimes heard among us, it's all going to burn. They think they have biblical grounds for the conclusion that a day is coming when God is going to put the cosmos into some kind of big supernatural incinerator. But today I want to make the case from Scripture that while that is certainly our Creator God's prerogative, folks, it's just not His style. Uh, He is not a God who crumples up His handiwork, tosses it in the wastebasket, and starts over. He is rather a God with a remarkable resolve to redeem what he's been, uh, pardon, what he has made uh, that's been broken by sin. Indeed, that is the way that he gets glory to himself in his redemptive purposes. So uh, in today's podcast, I'm going to explore four big and broad biblical themes about the future of planet Earth. Uh, Once upon a time, there was a book entitled The Late Great Planet Earth that was read quite broadly in our culture. Uh, And contrary to that book, uh, the Bible says that the future of our world is quite bright. Scripture everywhere speaks of God's intentions for our cosmos as, number one, being one day cleansed by God. Number two, being one day recreated by God. Three, being inherited by God's people. And number four, being inhabited one day by God with his people. By the way, along the way, uh, you'll have to put up with that B.B. Warfield quote again, but I think it's so good it will be worth hearing once again. Uh, Another one of the world's greatest theologians, in my humble opinion, Herbin Bavink, uh, liked to put this theme of this sermon this way, Grace Restores Nature. God's great mission and the future of heaven itself is to bring full restoration to the world that God made, the world that he declared to be good there at creation, and the world which I, for one, have gotten pretty attached to, with no apologies for that. I hope, folks, that you'll be yet further encouraged by what follows. Again tonight, I want to read from Revelation chapter 21, the first eight verses in preparation for a sermon titled, The New Heavens and the New Earth. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. 
For the former things have passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is the word of God. Amen. Shall we pray again? Father, we sin against you by thinking unworthy thoughts of you, and we have learned that some of those unworthy thoughts are not crediting to you enough grandeur in terms of your plan. We're continually making the good news not as good as it really is. So, Lord, enlarge our hearts to grasp how great and how good is your gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The late Keith Green is a contemporary Christian musician, one of the first who has a special place in my heart. He has a song called, I Can't Wait to Get to Heaven. Those of you who know the song, know the refrain. It goes like this. I can't wait to get to heaven when you'll wipe away all my fears. In six days, you created everything that you've been working on heaven 2,000 years. It's a wonderful song in many ways. It speaks of the beauty of this world in which we live as just a taste of the world that we will uh, dwell in. Forever and ever. I've come to suspect, though, that that's a song that has taken too much a single verse in the Bible and perhaps taking it has perhaps taken it in a direction not intended by the original context. Of course, the verse is Jesus words in John 14. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself and where I am. That where I am, you may be also. I suspect that as Keith Green sings a song with a great deal of edifying imagery of the uh, new heavens, the new earth, he also suspects that it's a realm Uh, that God is currently constructing like another Genesis in another place from which uh, or to which we'll go from this place. I don't know that for sure. It's my suspicion. This can easily happen. Not just in the area of eschatology, one verse exercising an inordinate influence on your eschatology can happen with all subjects, all kinds of subjects. We can take one particular verse And 
conclude things from it that actually conflict with major themes in the Bible. As a matter of fact, heresies typically take this route. As I tell my students, every heretic has his verse. He is seeking to uh, emphasize something he sees in one particular verse, but he is doing so without grappling with the broader scriptures, the broader themes of scriptures. Some of those strange notions of heaven that we began this series considering actually can be substantiated in the minds of many from specific verses. Gnostic views of heaven, Platonic views, scholastic views, even some pagan notions that creep into Christian thinking can be perpetuated with single verses. Jesus says at one point, my kingdom is not of this world. I think there's been not a few people who have interpreted Jesus as essentially saying something like this to Pilate. Look, you're interested in this shabby little planet. That's not my concern. I have something far greater that I'm concerned with. This place is just going to burn. Or in Hebrews 11, the passage we saw not too long ago that has this memorable expression, as it is they, that is the old covenant saints, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. I suspect that that's a verse that's been used to justify a somewhat platonic view. This world is just the image of the real world. Abraham saw into that real world, which is where we're going to go one day as this world perishes. Or first Peter chapter two, verse 11 gives us, as several places do in the New Testament, the language that we are sojourners and exiles and that can have the sense in some people's mind. We sort of we came from heaven. God created us. We're just passing through the earth, but our eventual destination is back there. Heaven, we're just passing through. Not trying to get settled because heaven is our home, not the earth. We have a hymn in our hymnal that comes very close to that way of thinking. We're not going to chase down all those verses tonight. What we're going to do instead, brothers and sisters, is we're going to look at four broad biblical themes about the future of planet earth. These are themes or truths about the future that are not just suggested by a verse or two, they're spread through all the pages of Scripture. You and I need to incorporate all the Scripture, the specific verses and the broad themes, but we do so most responsibly when we interpret the specific verses in light of the broad themes. I've already shown you how the history of heaven has been one of closer and closer connection to earth. That's the trajectory of Heaven and earth. And we've already looked at the promise of a consummation of that history of heaven. Heaven actually coming to earth. The passage that I just read is one we already referenced in that light. Tonight we're going to consider what this will mean. What this will actually look like to the best of our ability. And it will look like the fulfillment of these four broad biblical themes about the future of our world. They are these. First, our world will one day... Be cleansed. Secondly, our world will one day be recreated. Thirdly, our world will one day be inherited by the saints. And fourthly, our world will one day be inhabited by God. First, 
cleansed. What do you think of when you think of the world being cleansed? Children, what do you think of when you think of the world being washed? Do you think of something that has already happened? It happened actually fairly early on in the book of Genesis. You'd be right if you thought about the days of Noah. We read in Genesis 6, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. Does this sound familiar? And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way in the earth. And God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And what he does is, in effect, very literally, he washes the world. He sends a flood that removes the filth of wicked men and even the animal kingdom. It ought to impress you when you think about that example of God cleansing the earth. It ought to impress you that even as he recoils from the earth and all the violence, particularly all the wickedness that's taking place in the earth, God's reflex, if I may speak this way of God, is not to annihilate the earth. It's to cleanse it. It's to clean it up. Now, he does so. A righteous remnant is all that's left if he washes the world free of every sinner. And though the world, pardon me, though the Lord promises never to send flood waters like that upon the earth again, he does put before his people again throughout the ages the promise that the day is coming when he will do that same kind of thing again. He will cleanse the earth. Of wickedness. Now, that's a theme that goes throughout the Old Testament. We're seeing it right now as we read in the book of Joshua. What comes in the book of Joshua is that period of time in which God chooses a certain portion of the earth to cleanse. And what Joshua has done is he marches with his armies through the land of Canaan and slaughters the wicked who there have been uh, um, mounting up God's wrath against them. That is depicted for us in the scripture, we saw this some months back, as a cleansing of God's holy land in the earth. This theme is something that you see in the Psalms and the Proverbs. Psalm 1 speaks of the wicked like, do you remember? It's an agrarian illustration. It's for those who, who know a little bit about how to go about threshing grain. And when you thresh grain, you you beat it and you throw it in the air. That's pre-industrial, pre-industrialization. You throw it in the air and the wind catches the chaff and blows it away. And what's left behind is what you want, the grain, the part that you will feed your families or to your livestock. The wicked are like chaff. Psalm 1 says, that are blown away by the wind. Now, what kind of world is he living in? Is that what we see in some regular and consistent basis around us? The wicked are just constantly blowing away. They can't ever seem to get rooted in the world because they're, they're being blown. No, this is actually a psalm, as many of the psalms are, faith. This is what will come of the wicked. They will be blown away. And all that will be left 
are the righteous. Psalm, or rather Proverbs 2, verse 21 and 22. For the upright will inhabit the land, and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. Well, this is a proverb. This is a, a maxim. What is he referring to? Yes, there are, there are signs that God is fulfilling that kind of principle in our midst. Yes, but these are principles that are going to be fulfilled in a consummate way on the last day. That is the time in which the righteous will inhabit the land and the wicked will be cut off from the land. Jesus speaks this way in his teaching as he speaks of that coming day of judgment. Matthew 13, he describes himself with the way the words that the name that he typically gives himself. The son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. That's what Jesus envisions the final day being. He comes with his holy angels and those holy angels will be dreadful messengers. And they will be essentially conducting a sweep operation of the earth. They'll be rounding up and cleansing the earth from the unrighteous. And then the righteous will shine in the kingdom. In establishing this theme, I've been quoting to you thus far, and I'd like you to turn now in your Bibles to the book of Second Peter. If you're already in Revelation, go backwards just a few pages, and you'll come to Second Peter chapter 3. We've looked at this passage before, speaking of the flood of Noah. Peter sees that as relevant, that actually as the paradigm. For what is yet to come, a cleansing of the earth. Second Peter, chapter three, I begin reading at verse four. They, that is the cynic, the scoffer, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water. And through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Do you see what he did there? He said, this has happened before. Noah surely got his scoffing when he built his ark. And yet the time came when God did cleanse the earth of the unrighteous. And now it's happening again. And God will come. Jesus will come. What happened in Noah's day with water? Well, the wicked perished in the land. Verse 6. What will happen in the last day by fire? The ungodly will be destroyed. Verse 7. You ought to think... As you hear Peter speak of fire, you ought to think of what he learned from Jesus about this fire. This fire that we associate with hell that Jesus refers to, describing what will be the fate of the wicked. This is a fire that's not only a punishing 
fire. It's a purifying fire. That's actually the sense of the word that's found there in Second Peter. It's taken from the refiner's furnace, the, the smelter's craft, who's purifying metal. All of this, brothers and sisters, to make the point that in the scripture there is this broad theme that God will one day do in a final and consummate way what he did as a down payment, in a sense, in the days of Noah. He will cleanse the earth. Now, before I go any further, I'll just say to you, he's actually cleansing the earth now as well. That's another broad theme in Scripture. We don't have time to go into it at great length, but he is also cleansing the earth right now. The day is coming when he will cleanse the earth by ridding it of the wicked. Right now, he's cleansing the earth by transforming the wicked like you and me into his people. What a great God we have. He has however many thousands of years that has been since Noah's day. He has been Cleanse in the earth by redemption. The day is coming when he will cleanse the earth in judgment. He will purify the earth. The, the wicked will be swept away. And the righteous will be established in the, line, in the land. Brothers and sisters, that's the, whole, that's the whole epic story of redemption. It's God's determination to clean his house. To rid the earth, his earth, of evil. And you who live in a disposable generation, everything is practically disposable. You need to get this very firmly in your mind. That is not our God's view of the world in which we live. He has not created a disposable earth. He has created an earth that he considers worthy of cleansing. Which leads us to the second broad theme, not only of cleansing, but of recreating. If the world were just soiled with sin, then it would just need to be cleansed. But it's been more than soiled, it's been broken. The metaphor that is used, the, the part that stands for the whole in the book of Genesis, is the expression thorns and thistles. That's the expression that we find that sums up everything that's broken about our world in its very working and it's in the very nature of our world. The things which we consider this morning, our dying bodies, that's our brokenness in the world. The things that motivate us so powerfully when we pray for newborns with heart defects. When we pray for brothers and sisters who are struggling with cancer. These are things that manifest the brokenness of the world. Things that scientists can talk about, like laws of entropy... That we can say, surely there must be something even in the Newtonian physics of our world that reflect its being cursed by God. Brothers and sisters, because this is part of the curse, this will also be part of God's redeeming work on the last day. Now, that theme is represented, for example, in the prophets of the Old Covenant, who speak not only of healing coming from God to the people of Israel, but they go further to talk about the healing that God will bring as extending to the land. You know this kind of language. Isaiah 35 is an example. Isaiah writes, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The deserts shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. 
and it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. Actually, the prophets go even further than this. It's not just the land that's going to be happy, but the animals are going to be happy when this new heavens and new earth takes place. Remember Isaiah's one who coins that expression? Uh, we just read about it in John's Gospel. We'll see it again in Peter. But these uh, New Testament writers are just taking that word, that expression from Isaiah. He coins that term in chapter 65. It's a famous passage where he says, on behalf of God, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. And then later in that passage, describing this new heavens and new earth realm, he says, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. The prophet's saying that the brokenness of the world extends to the way the animals treat each other. That's how badly broken our world is, and that will be fixed. That will be mended. There will be no violence. The new heavens and the new earth. I've been using the word recreation. You could use another word that's more familiar to you, used in another context. We typically speak of the Holy Spirit coming and making a new creation of any one of us or our friends and neighbors as regeneration. That word is used by us most typically to refer to God beginning this work of new heavens and new earth in our hearts by giving us new hearts. It's a very appropriate use of the word. But I've pointed out to you before, our Lord Jesus uses that word, regeneration, to refer to something much larger. Matthew 19, verse 28, he speaks of the regeneration. And he says, truly I say to you, in the new world, that's the word actually. Some of your translations put it in its uh, literal rendering. Truly I say to you, in the regeneration... When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. That word regeneration in that context, it actually is taken from the word Genesis. It could be the second Genesis. Jesus is talking about a time in which the world will be remade in a way analogous to its first making. There's going to be another Genesis wherein God comes and brings order out of chaos and light out of darkness and so on. Again, this theme is made evident in the way Paul speaks. I've also referred to Romans 8 already in this little series where he links our coming resurrection with the recreation of the earth. And that's why he depicts the earth as eager for our adoption as sons. He uses the word adoption of son, as sons to refer to the resurrection of the last day. And he says in Romans 8, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. It was broken. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay. What is the creation care about what happens to you and me because its fate has always been tied 
to what happens to us. When we fell, creation fell. And when we are lifted up in redemption, the creation is also redeemed. It is recreated, restored to its original glory. Did you know that this was God's plan? This morning I spoke to you about how God will refashion your body from the dust of the ground, just like He did in Genesis with Adam. Tonight I'm saying to you that He is not only going to refashion your body, your self-same body, He's also going to refashion, recreate, restore the whole cosmos, just like He made it in Genesis. There will be this significant difference. In the last day, He will not create ex nihilo. He will not create out of nothing. He will recreate. He will restore. Children, if trees and squirrels could pray, they'd be praying the same thing we pray. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, because we're all in this together. As soon as you come and complete your redemption on your elect people, the sooner we will have the relief of our own redemption. The creation groans and waits for this. I want to pause here for a moment and look back at Second Peter with you and make clear something that can be one of those passages that can lead people into a wrong direction. I'm saying to you that the theme of the scripture is that the creation is recreated. But some have read later in Second Peter Peter's words to refer to God's intention to utterly annihilate the creation at the last day. I'm thinking of 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now, that sure sounds, if that's all you've got to go on, like that's the end of planet Earth. Late, great planet Earth. There she goes. And we'll live forever, not here, because here is going away. It's disappearing. We'll live forever in heaven. Surely the talk there about heaven Passing away and heavenly bodies being dissolved can sound like that. But let's look carefully at what Peter is saying. Do you remember how in the passage I just read, he described the earth being destroyed by the flood? That was the language he used of what happened in Noah's day. The earth was destroyed by the flood. Now, that is what happened. But not in the sense of annihilation. The earth was very much preserved through that ordeal. Peter can speak of the earth being destroyed in Noah's day and being uh, dissolved in our or in the day that is coming without necessarily meaning that God will reduce to nothing the earth. And by the way, the fire that he speaks of here, it's no ordinary fire, as a matter of fact. Verse 10, we're told this fire, that by this fire, the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Well, fire consumes, it destroys. How does it reveal? Well, that's the language again of purifying. The language taken from the smelting of 
iron. This is the fire that is also spoken of as being the, the, the habitation of hell. And that's a fire that's an interesting kind of fire, isn't it? We've recognized before that that's a fire that never consumes because hell is eternal. It's a fire that conveys torment, but, but does not consume. It's a fire that's not literal fire because it's fire and yet it's in a place of utter darkness. This is Peter's use of the language of our Lord to speak of these two things, the things we've been talking about thus far, of God purifying his earth with fire and his recreating it. We know that Peter does not believe in the annihilation of the earth. If we listen carefully to one of his sermons in Acts chapter 3, where he speaks of Jesus as the one whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. If you'll permit me, I want to read one more time a quote from Benjamin Warfield, Presbyterian great, is relevant to this point. He says, the elect, they are not the residuum of the great conflagration, the ashes so to speak, of the burnt-up world, gathered sadly together by the Creator after the catastrophe is over, that He may make a new and perhaps better beginning with them and build from them, perchance, a new structure to replace that which has been lost. Orfield writes, God is saving the world. The world, mind you, and not merely some individuals out of the world, by a process which involves not supplanting, but reforming, recreating. We look for new heavens and a new earth. It is true, but these new heavens and new earth are not other heavens and another earth, but the old heavens and old earth renewed. Or as the scriptures phrase it, regenerated. For not the individual merely, but the fabric of the world itself is to be regenerated. In that regeneration, quote, when the Son of Man shall sit on the throne of his glory. So, brothers and sisters, the takeaway of all this is be careful what you mean when you talk about this world as passing. Sometimes I'm not exactly sure what some of our hymn writers mean when they speak about the world as passing. They're ambiguous on this point. It, yes, it's, it's correct to speak of this world as passing, like the world before Noah was passing. It's right to speak of this world as passing like the bodies that you presently have are passing. Yes, it's passing, but not passing into oblivion. It will pass when God, in an extraordinary display of his power, not just to create, but to restore, brings about a whole recreating of that which we first made. This is a saying of the church fathers. You should mark down. Grace does not destroy nature. It restores it. What will this look like? Well, I will invite you here just in passing. What will this created, recreated cosmos be like? I will invite you in passing to indulge in some holy imagination. 
We actually have a great deal to furnish our imagination with. We live in this world. We are able to see its glories even in its brokenness. And if your powers of imagination, you take what you love about this world, what is magnificent about this world, and imagine it unmarred by sin, that's your job. And that's, what you, that's where you're getting as close as we can get to knowing what this new creation will look like. And that is where I'll say men like C.S. Lewis and others, Randy Alcorn is one, who does help us to imagine a world, a world untouched by sin. Cleansing the world is coming. Recreating the world. Third theme that all specific verses about the fate of planet Earth should be interpreted by is this. Our world will one day be inherited by the saints. Remember how the Bible begins? God creates Adam and Eve. And he says to them, I have given you every tree of the garden for food, except one. It begins with him giving to Adam and Eve the world. That theme continues. Noah is told, I'm giving you all the animals. You can even eat them. They're yours. This world is yours This theme continues. God tells Abraham, I have some land for you. I have a piece of planet Earth that I'm going to give you. And a long time ago, when we studied this big theme, we remembered that some, Richard Pratt is among them, see that whole uh, journey of Abraham to the land that God had promised as being a journey back to the original place. Where Adam and Eve were put in the earth in order to once again inherit and once again take possession of all the earth. Now, in our studies in Hebrews, we saw how Abraham dies and doesn't get what he inherited. This is a problem. It's a problem for faith. It would be just on the surface. But Hebrews tells us Abraham did something by faith. He decided that it really wasn't just a peace. Of planet Earth, after all, was the whole Earth. And God was going to give to His descendants the land of Canaan. But one day, the writer of Hebrews tells us, Abraham recognized God is going to give to me and to my descendants the Earth. That's the better country, the heavenly country. It's a country that only heaven can give. It's like a kingdom that Jesus says that is his kingdom. It's not of this world because it's a kingdom that comes not by the ordinary processes of this world. It's a kingdom that comes as a gift of heaven. I told you when we looked at that portion of Hebrews, think of it this way. Abraham didn't look up for the fulfillment of the promise like That heavenly country was up there somewhere. and He was going to die and go there. No, he looked ahead. That's actually what we're told. He looked forward to the city that has foundations. Paul makes this clear in Romans 4, where he tells us in a matter-of-fact way that Abraham and his offspring knew they would be the heir of the world. 
as your elders struggle through the cities uh, and their inhabitants that are given as inheritance to Israel in the land. This is the theme of God giving to his people this world. Psalm 37. So I have you turn there. Do we have time? Psalm 37 is the theme of the inheritance of the world by the saints. In its most concentrated form in the Psalms, Psalm 37, in verse after verse, speaks of this. Verse 9, the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Verse 11, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Verse 22, those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land. But those cursed by him should be cut off. Verse 29. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. Verse, 37, or verse 34, rather. We're exhorted, wait for the Lord and keep his way. And he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. Jesus comes preaching, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What this means, brothers and sisters, it is not a carnal thing for you to have your favorite parts of planet earth. It's not a carnal thing for you to, to love the world. You realize, of course, I trust, that when the Bible tells us not to be lovers of the world, it's not talking about your favorite beach. It's not talking about your favorite mountain getaway. Not talking about your backyard, your front yard. It's not talking about the, the national park. It's not talking about the planet. When it tells you not to love the world, it's using world as is frequently done in the New Testament. Refer to all that systematic systemic sin that is in our world. That's the world. That's what we mean by worldliness. If you find yourself, your heart, getting very attached to the things God has made, the, the world, no idolatry. Anything can become an idol. But the world is a gift of God to you. And one day you will inherit it fully. Holy, completely. That's what the hymn we'll sing in a moment is celebrating. This is my Father's world. And He's going to give it to me. Last theme about the future of planet Earth. It's going to be cleansed. It's going to be recreated. It's going to be inherited by us. And lastly, it will be inhabited by God. I've already developed this theme, I think. In this series, we traced how God is intent on making his dwelling among men. It's a major theme in the Bible. Not making room primarily where he is for us, but coming, condescending to come to us and establishing his special presence. We call that heaven on earth. Ephesians 1.10 was a theme verse. The plan is for, in the fullness of time, God to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. And that's what Revelation 21 was about that we looked at 
earlier this evening. That's what is being spoken of when we read of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And our being told from a loud voice from the throne, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. and God himself will be with them as their God. I mentioned Randy Alcorn. He has a book entitled Heaven. I can almost without reservation recommend. It's a very, very helpful book. He writes this. Just as God and mankind are reconciled in Christ, so the dwelling of God and mankind, heaven and earth, will be reconciled in Christ. As God and man will forever be united in Jesus, so heaven and earth will forever be united in the new physical universe where we will live as resurrected beings. To affirm anything less is to understate the redemptive work of Christ. God's plan, Alcorn continues, is that there will be no more gulf between the spiritual and physical worlds. There will be no divided loyalties, no divided realms. There will be one cosmos, one universe, united under one Lord forever. This is the unstoppable plan of God. This is where history is headed. And then he writes, when God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, earth was heaven's backyard. The new earth will be even more than that. It will be heaven itself. And those who know Jesus will have the privilege of living there. What amazing condescension of God. It would be a a mercy of God if he simply cleansed us, wouldn't it? It would be an even greater mercy of God if he recreated us. It would be a greater mercy of God if he... If he gave us back our place of dominion in the earth, but of all things, for him to come to the earth and dwell with us there. That's the hope of the prophets. They go that far in their expectations. They speak of not us with God. They speak of God with us. Despite all the barriers, this has been begun. It's been begun in you, individually and especially collectively. God has made his home here on earth in your midst, your people. You're the dwelling place of God. You're the new temple. What God has done in us individually, he's one day going to do for the whole earth. The whole earth will become his habitation. Some have thought of it just the opposite. Earth will be somehow swallowed up as we all go to heaven, but rather it's heaven being settled on earth that the scripture speaks of. So, brothers and sisters, all of this to emphasize as you interpret this verse or this verse or this passage and seek to incorporate it into the scriptures, that you recognize the future of planet earth despite what some have rather adamantly said, is a rather glorious one. It's a great and glorious future for the people of God and for their world. Abraham Kuyper famously gave us the reason for this in that dictum of his. There is not one 
inch the entire area of human life about which Christ, who is sovereign of all, does not cry out, Mine. And when Jesus returns and raises all from the dead and banishes the wicked from the earth and gives the earth to His saints and settles Himself in the world as its King of kings and Lord of lords, it will be His saying in a final, glorious way that none can gainsay of all the earth Mine. It all will say, Amen. Let's pray together. You've been listening to Resurrection Life with Pastor Nathan Trice a ministry of Resurrection Presbyterian Church in Matthews, North Carolina. If you've been blessed by today's podcast, consider sharing it with someone you know. And thank you for joining us.